Welcome back to another episode of Journey of a Fearless Female. I'm your host, Pale Rosser, and this week is coming all the way from New York. My guest is Alyssa Moorhead. She's a single female business owner who lives in Brooklyn, New York, and has lived in New York City for almost 10 years now. Alyssa came to New York from Louisville, Kentucky in 2010 to attend NYU, studying marketing and creative writing. Through moving to a huge city and figuring out how to make it on her own, going through a seven-year relationship with emotional abuse and struggling with bipolar disorder, Alyssa has learned so many lessons about relationships, self-care, female entrepreneurship, and mental illness. Alyssa can't wait to share her fearless female journey and some of these lessons with you. Everybody, please welcome Alyssa. Woohoo! Imagined applause. <laughs> I know. Imagine applause. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. I don't know if I told you before, this is actually my first podcast. Really? Well, welcome to your first podcast interview. I'm so excited to have you guys listen to Alyssa's crazy journey. <laughs> it's a fearless, crazy journey, but she actually reached out to me through Facebook. I'm always looking for guests and I posted something in a group that I'm a part of. And she said, I would love to be on your podcast. And I usually do like a quick 15 minute interview before I get them on the show. But we talked for a good 45 minutes. And I was like, your story is so incredible. You've gone through so much in your life. And you have so many nuggets of wisdom that I know people can relate to. So Alyssa, let's get started. You were originally from Kentucky. I mean, small town Kentucky to the New York lights. <laughs> yes, it was a big change for sure. I mean, everybody in Louisville was like, are you sure you want to do that? I mean, my parents really didn't even think I would ever get here. I don't think, I mean, they didn't think that I would get into NYU and then they didn't think that if I got in that we would be able to all of us afford it because it is damn expensive. Tell us about what a culture shock that might've been for you from going from Kentucky to NYU. When I went to NYU, I think, you know, it was it was a big change in so many different ways, but definitely financially. And when I was deciding to go to NYU, so I went to a magnet high school, which I'm not sure if that's a term nationally. Like, have you heard of magnet high schools? I've heard of them, but I don't know. So please let us know what it's about. So a magnet high school is almost like when you go to college and choose your major. So a magnet high school has different programs, just like a college would. But most magnet high schools, I believe, are private. And this one was public, but you still have to be accepted. So I had to apply to get into my high school and then apply to get into NYU too. So it was double the stress. So when you were at this magnet high school, what did you choose to learn? Like you would have to specifically pick a subject that you would want to learn more about? Yeah, we had to choose when you were applying. So there was a lot of them that were super specific. Like there was a theater, there was a creative arts, there was a math and science. And then mine was high school university, which is similar to what I chose at NYU because you got to combine all different programs together. So that pretty much sums up me in a nutshell. I think just like a lot of people, you are a combination of controversies or, or different things. 
I'm bipolar and also bisexual. So I'm a, a double bi, <laughs> which I've never, never thought of before. So went to DuPont Manual in Louisville for high school university and coming from that high school to NYU, NYU chose, I didn't know this before, but they choose like a certain amount apparently from each state. And then even more than that, like my school was one of the ones that had the most common accepted applicants at all for Kentucky because it is, it's, I mean, there's a lot of really smart people at that school. So I was one of two or three that got in and then two of us went out of a program of 600. So it was a big deal to be accepted. And then once I was accepted again, like my parents were like, well, we're never going to be able to afford this. And I was like, oh, I'll pay my share. I'll do whatever I can to, to make it over. So when I first came, I was super excited. Like the first day after we unpacked you know, like eight caravans of crap into a room that's the size of the size of your closet. So after I unpacked everything, my parents were divorced already. So my dad drove me up here, which was 12 plus hours from Louisville to New York City. And my mom flew because she couldn't be in the car with him for that long. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. When I first got here, I was super excited. I still remember like the first time setting out and walking up University Place in the middle of New York. I just remember being so fucking excited that I finally made it to my destination. And then there, there were a, a lot of challenges, a lot of them that I brought over, you know, from my youth, from being in Louisville, and a lot that I encountered once I got there. Being diagnosed with bipolar disorder when I was 15 and still dealing with that and figuring out how to manage it the best I can. And then also when I got to NYU, I, I got into a relationship that, like a lot of women, started great and then turned into an emotionally abusive relationship. And then I'm also going to talk um, in work and, and going from dealing with all those issues to running your own business and learning how to kind of manage it all as a woman and as an adult, which there's a whole lot to manage as an adult that they don't teach you in school. <laughs> <laughs> no, they don't. So let's talk about your diagnosis. How did you get to that place where they diagnosed you? Were you starting to see symptoms? Were you starting, your your family or your friends started to realize that you were having emotional ups and downs? Like, how did you get to the place where you're like, okay, I need to go see somebody. There's something wrong with me or I mean, not something wrong with you, but like there's something not right. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like emotionally not right. Like, where did you get to the place where you're like, I need to go see what this is. And did you get on any medications? Yeah, so I think I was lucky in a strange sense that my parents started to start the divorce process when I was 13, which for them, it took two years. I just learned from talking to a divorce lawyer that sometimes I can take four plus. So when I was 13, they started their divorce and around, you know, 14 and a half is when I started going through the process, which if any of you guys have gone through divorce and you're a kid, they have you, at least in Kentucky and Louisville, they have you talk to a counselor to decide who you're going to live with. But when you get a little bit older, you can kind of make the choice on your own. 
but for me, the courts got to decide. So I, I was talking to a counselor about who I wanted to live with and what was going on in my life. And from talking to me about that, that's when they diagnosed that I was bipolar. So it's, you know, it's not a result of the divorce, but I think that that was definitely a major stressor along with just other, you know, teenage troubles, so many things to figure out as a teen. So when I was talking to the divorce counselor or my counselor for divorce, that's when they diagnosed me with bipolar disorder. But the way that it was treated back then, it it was not working for me. I was writing these notes for this podcast. I was trying to figure out how to describe it. One of the things that we did after a couple of weeks and we decided that I was going to have long-term care for bipolar disorder, and I was diagnosed with bipolar 2, which is rapid cycling. So you go back and forth between mania and depression. And I would go, I think I went maybe once a week and then possibly down to twice a month. But when I was going once a week, one of the things that we would do was have me hold this like plastic object that vibrated and you were supposed to pass it back and back and forth between your hands and think of negative thoughts and have them vibrated away, which that's weird. <laughs> as a teen as a teenager and even me, like as I'm an adult and I've gone into more of the female entrepreneur space and learned more about what a lot of people in the Louisville would call like the woo-woo, you know, like the holistic health space, which a lot of people in the South do, do not believe in any of that or even want to talk about it. But that's what we were doing during like 15 minutes of my sessions. And back then when I was a teenager, like, yeah, when I was a teen and even now, I still think of it as holding a vibrator during my counseling session. (laughs) (laughs) The vibrator was not doing it for me. It did not make a lot of uh, progress, I would not say. Well, my question to you is like, you know, you're a teenage female. And, you know, when you're first going through your change of like getting your period, like we have all these hormones in our body, like we're just don't understand what's going on with our body. It's changing. And then add on top of that a divorce, which If your parents can't sit in the same car for 12 hours, it just goes to show what kind of divorce it was. I mean, wouldn't it just be, you know, you being a teenager? Like for me, I think like, would it be a misdiagnosis? I'm not trying to, you know, say that you were misdiagnosed, but I mean, I have a teenage son and, you know, even I think back and I think back when I was a teenager, you you go through these roller coaster of emotions because you're not really exactly a kid anymore, but you're not an adult. So you're not treated like a child and you're not treated like an adult. So you're just like stuck in this like middle ground of being a teenager and you're going through these hormones, your body is changing, you don't understand what's going on and add on top of that, like the chaos that your parents are going through. I mean, that would make anyone bipolar, if you ask me, like it would make anyone have manic depression and have mania. I mean, I think about all the things that I went through. And I'm sure a lot of people called me, you know, crazy and said that I had all these weird emotions. But at the time, when you don't have the tools, and you don't know how to express yourself verbally, would you think that maybe a lot of people are misdiagnosed as bipolar? I don't want to speak on that as authority and say that I know for sure. But I do know that lots of counselors like so I I continued counseling and therapy when I was 
at college at NYU and then afterwards for a number of years. And definitely I had other therapists say the exact same thing. Number one, that it could have been either a misdiagnosis or just diagnosed too early. And also that that happens a lot. But I do also want to say that it's, it's really complicated for me because the symptoms and how I felt were, were much more than just like general teenage angst. And that's how I prefer to look back at it. But, you know, when we were talking about this podcast, you asked me to recall details and more come up as I talk about the stories. But my bipolar disorder got so bad that the mania I was talking way faster than I am right now, 10 miles a minute, and my friends and family and teachers couldn't understand me, and I wanted to party all the time and hook up with boys all the time and go shopping for shit I did not give a shit about. I remember we would go to Walgreens, and I would buy 30 things in 10 minutes, so the mania was nuts, and then the depression before, uh, so I actually ended up going to a psychiatric hospital treatment center, like a mentalist institution for teenage girls. And before I went there, I remember I had a giant steak knife buried, buried under the end of my bed, just like under the blanket in case, in case I ever felt so depressed that I wanted to hurt myself, which I never did. I never cut myself or any actual self-harm, which is lucky because I, you know, I know so many women and people do, and I would definitely felt that sad, but I never got to actually do it. But I had a, a giant knife under my bed for months, and that's not normal. That's crazy. I mean, not crazy, that's a bad term, but that's not, that's not normal. That's very depressed and something is very wrong. And then the, you know, the short end of that story is that I started getting, I was, had a lot of friends in high school. I went from middle school, which was a very small private school in a very affluent area in Anchorage, Kentucky, where Papa John's lives. And then I went to Manual and I moved to a whole new neighborhood, which you know, Kentucky is huge, Louisville is huge, big enough that it was a whole new world for a teenager. People didn't know each other. So I made a whole new group of friends on a totally different area, totally different people. And then I started dating a guy back then, same name as the second guy I dated in at college who I had a bad relationship with. And the first one of the same name was equally bad. And I started dating this guy that I really liked at the time and all of my new friends basically like abandoned me and turned their backs on me. So their friend that I didn't know was his ex-girlfriend. And even though I never met her or spoke to her, knew of her, since I started dating her ex, all of my 10 close friends started to stop talking to me. So things got worse and worse, like as, as my bipolar disorder worsened and then like the actual symptoms of my real life got worse. And I ended up going to that mental institution and I was there for four days. So they combined in this institute, they combined women with mental issues like depression and mania and anxiety with women, teenagers that had been 
sexually abused or didn't have a home to go to, just like a, a plethora of issues that were not related. And when I was there, I basically decided that as bad as it got, I never wanted to go back to a place like that. So I would just just ignore it for as long as I could. So you tried to ignore your bipolar diagnosis. Yeah. And during the ignoring stage, <laughs> were you tr- were you still taking the medication they prescribed you or were you just not taking any medication at all? They prescribed me medication that I had to take when I was at that institute in, I want to say Bloomington, Kentucky. So I had to take it while I was there and I left and I took it for a week or so and then I stopped. It never, I mean, that's that's a bad like singular definition because a lot of these medications do a lot if you stay on them. But these medications that I was on, as I got, as it took them longer, I got proceedingly worse and my parents wouldn't recognize me. I either seemed hypermania, like hypermanic, like I was on crack or I was so depressed I couldn't get out of bed, period. And I would miss school for so many days, they considered not letting me graduate. So the ones that I was prescribed when I was in high school were not helpful and probably was even too young to be prescribed them really at all. So, yeah. Yeah. I think the medical, the medicines that they prescribe you sometimes can really amplify the feelings that you're already feeling. Like you said, the depression and the mania, and it does do something to your brain chemistry that can be irreversible sometimes. And sometimes people don't understand that if it's not working for you and you're feeling a certain way, you should speak up and advocate for yourself and say, this is not making me feel good. It's not changing it in a positive way. I mean, there are certain medications that do help people with depression and help you with your serotonin levels. But there are certain medications, like you said, you feel like you're on crack. (laughs) And those aren't those aren't good medications, because you're already feeling a little bit disoriented. And so to have those medications on top of that is not a good or healthy way to live. So you're now at NYU, and you meet this guy. Tell us about this guy that you met. Yeah, I think, you know, I kind of in full effect replaced the things that I did in high school to mediate and deal with the bipolar disorder, like going out and partying and kissing boys and, you know, doing party drugs. I kind of replaced that with this guy because it made me feel so happy. So the guy that I met, his sister is a lot older than him, 20 years older than him. Wow, that's a big gap. (laughs) Yeah, so his sister's daughter, which is his niece, was my friend, which is strange. So basically, when I was 17 and she was 18 or 19, this guy was 23. He's six years older than me. So it's a weird like family history. But basically, I met this guy from his niece and she would call him his uncle so when I tell people like I'm dating my friend's uncle it sounded pretty strange right but I met this guy and it was kind of refreshing that he wasn't part of the NYU crowd a lot of the guys that came to NYU were either from New York and very snobby and knew they could kind of be with whatever girl they wanted I was about to say douchey (laughs) 
yeah, pretty much. And then, yeah, I don't know. And then a lot of, there's some that were, you know, kind of nerdy and didn't have any interesting girls. There's just like whole mishmash of interesting guys. Yeah. But I mean, I really, I uh, really liked this guy at the beginning. He treated me well. Now, when you were in college, did you already know you were bisexual or not yet? Because you're only talking about only looking at guys. I did. The first time I knew that I liked a girl, I was much younger, 13 in middle school. So I had a crush on my best friend and I dated one girl in high school for a little while right before college. So I knew that I liked girls, but when I went into college, even though I had a group of friends that was fairly liberal in high school, I didn't know anyone else that was bisexual. And I think I was still afraid to kind of like announce that to my friends. So I would kiss girls and hook up with girls, but I wouldn't talk about it about as much as I would talk about like hooking up with boys or dating boys. And I didn't date another girl until junior year of high school, actually, right before I dated this guy who we're talking about. So at the beginning, it, it seemed great. He would drive down from the Bronx to pick me up in New York and in, in Manhattan, which was like a 30 or 40 minute drive, depending on traffic. And, you know, he seemed to treat me pretty well. But we never really dated. We just went straight into a relationship. And as soon as we got into the relationship part and things got more serious and I was spending time there every day and then eventually started living there, things got progressively worse. And I, I also went, things were pretty decent until I went to Spain in my junior year about six months after we met, I was gone for nine months. And we did, we agreed that when I was gone, that we would both be allowed to see other people. But even though he encouraged that, I know he didn't really want that. And neither did I, but I was gone for nine months. So I hooked up with other people while I was gone. And when I came back, things were, he, we, we'd lost the trust. And after we lost that trust factor, things went from good to middling to worse. And when I lived there, a lot of our friends, you know, we would go out with friends that both of us knew and I was living with him and he would tell people that I wasn't his girlfriend, that he didn't love me, that we weren't, you know, like people say like, well, what are you guys doing? He would say nothing. Like we're not even casually dating. We're not together or anything, even though I was sleeping in a bed with him every single night. And then as I, you know, things went on a little bit longer and I didn't know all of that at that time, I would go back and forth to Louisville to see my dad and then Tampa where my mom lives. And he wouldn't speak to me the whole time I was gone for, you know, like five to seven days. And I have no idea. I, I really don't know. I mean, I would like text him and call him and he just wouldn't answer. I mean, that was like a trait of him is that, well, that's when I knew things would go downhill and then go back uphill. But when they were going downhill, he just wouldn't answer the phone. So like I would be coming home from work and he would be at home. He just wouldn't answer for no reason that he would explain. 
So then, you know, things got worse and worse and worse. And he started to break up with me in progressively strange and more terrible ways. So when I came back from Tampa, maybe the first or second time that I'd gone there after I got back from Spain, I came back home and he, he would almost always pick me up at the airport but he, because he had two cars and he picked me up at the airport with his friend in their truck and we drove home and it was very quiet and I thought something was wrong. And then we got into the driveway and they were both just like sitting there with something they knew that I didn't. And I was like, guys, like, let's go inside. What the fuck are we doing? And he was like, yeah, so we're broken up. Can you go and get your stuff? Because it's over. And I had nowhere to go. I barely knew the guy whose truck we were in. I'd met him like once before and was not very impressed. It was almost like he was trying to embarrass you in front of someone else. Yeah, it was it was really bad. So I think that night I stayed with one of my best friends, but I'd been so plugged into that relationship that I wasn't keeping up with my friends the way I should. So then to just call them and say like, hey, the guy that, you know, I told you I was going to marry just broke up with me in the driveway. And oh, yeah, can I stay with you for an undeterminable length of time? <laughs> yeah. Was like They were like, what the fuck? You don't even answer my, you know, phone calls half the time. So I think a big red flag that people need to know about like abusive relationships is when you are eliminating your friends and family from your life and just solely trying to be with this one person it's unhealthy because like you said they do that on purpose they kind of isolate you from everyone else because they're making it seem like all you need is me and I love you and I'll take care of you but then they'll hurt you and you really have no one to run to and so you end up staying in that relationship longer than you should yeah I definitely agree with that and I mean, my mom and I barely talked for most of that time. If I spoke to her once a month, that was, a you know, a good month. And my dad and I, who's my dad is one of my best friends. I mean, I would like leave the house to go talk to him. I think just so that the boyfriend couldn't listen because there was always something to be said. Like there was always something weird going on at that point, whether... I mean, he would come home from, quote, work later and later and later, like 10 o'clock, 12 o'clock, 2 a.m., and he wouldn't answer my texts or calls or say where he was. And then he would get home and he wouldn't, you know, I'd say like, hey, how have you been? I wouldn't even question him because I was almost afraid to Then he would talk to me even less than not at all. And I would ask him where he'd been and he wouldn't answer. And then he would get into bed and like, when I knew it was really, really, really bad is when I would try to touch him and he would recoil. He wouldn't even like let me hug him or kiss him on the cheek. Nonetheless, have sex. Sex just stopped. So it just got worse. Yeah. And you're literally living with him and sleeping in the same bed while this is going on. Oh, yeah. And then the part that we haven't talked about would be, you know, that minor hoarder issue. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah, he did say that he he was a hoarder. 
on top of that, not only was he mentally abusive and telling her mean things and trying to embarrass her in front of her friends, but also he was a hoarder. Yeah, I was I was just telling my friend who's moving to California at the end of this month, she was like, man, my boyfriend has a lot of stuff. And I was like, girl, you cannot even compare to what I used to live in, which was literally like a sea floor to ceiling of crap that no one needs or just not that much of it. So when my dad came to visit me, we lived, he still lived with his mom when I was living with him. So his mom in the Bronx, in nicer areas like Riverdale, where we lived, there are townhouses. So his mom had a bedroom on the top floor with a study next to it. And then he and I had two bedrooms down below. And when my dad came to visit to get from the downstairs door to our bedroom, you had to walk through a hallway and you couldn't even walk through there without like sucking in your tummy, pushing in your butt, moving your shoulders around. Like there was not a clear walkway to get 20-ish feet from the front door to the bedroom. So you couldn't even make it through to there without things falling on you. And then the bedroom was like that. And were all the things his or his and his mom's? A lot of the stuff that was in the hallway, I mean, his mom is where it started. So she had three children. Her older son between him and his sister died. And she kept everything of his after he died in a car crash. And then I think just it just continued after that. She lived in the same place for a long time. And honestly, a lot of people in New York do this. Like if you don't move for a while, or even if you do, we are normal people who collect shit often not on purpose. And you're in such a small place, there's nowhere to put it. So, but people here work all the time. So you don't focus on getting rid of your stuff. You go back to work. Yeah. But considering what happened to her and the death of her child, she definitely is hoarding because of a sense of loss. And she gets to keep these material items as, you know, I mean, that's sad. So on top of all of that, so how long did you stay in that relationship? Like it was almost six plus years, I want to say. And what was your last straw to finally get out of that? I think the last straw was, well, I can tell you. I mean, there were so many breakups, but (laughs) the last straw was when he would tell all of his friends that we weren't together, right? His guy friends. And they were like, I hate saying shit like this. They're like, dude, she's a babe. Why don't you want her? And he wouldn't answer. That was his response to everything. He just didn't answer. So his friends wanted to get with me, which I was so uninterested in at all. They were like him. They were like living with their mom, maybe had a job or not. It was not good. But one of, one of his friends, I guess he told this guy, Richard, that he was looking for apartments with his other friend, Michael. And so he was planning to move out of where I was still living with him and his mom and her boyfriend on the top floor, he was going to move out and just leave me there living with his mom. Oh my gosh. Like, what the fuck would I, I mean, how weird is that? What would your mom have thought with some random, I wasn't random, but like, why would I be living in your house when you were not with your mother? So he was going to move out and not tell me. And that, that was the final straw. So his friend was like, yeah, so... 
he's been looking at apartments. When are you two moving? And I was like, I can tell you for a fact that two of us ain't going anywhere because I don't fucking know that he's looking at apartments. And if he's leaving without telling me, then it's done for good. Like that, I, I mean, there were so many things that what's bad to worse, but if you're going to move out and not tell your girlfriend, like Jesus, at least break up with me for the seventh time, you know? He seemed like an avoider. He didn't want to he didn't want to confront the situation, so he was just going to hopefully not speak with his words, but hopefully speak with his actions and he was just trying to avoid it. So once you left the relationship, you know, what was going on in your life then? I think things got a, a lot better once I left. I mean, he definitely after I left and then he would, you know, come and talk to me again and then he would come over and see me or whatever. Like he still tried to wiggle his way back in and I still loved him, but I wasn't willing to trust him again. So after that, I was living on my own on the Upper West Side and I moved around a little bit and I then started my own business, which was a big step for me. So I went from working as a marketing manager at a real estate firm to running my own marketing agency. So I did that from the beginning of 2018 to just last month, to the middle of 2020. And then I transitioned from a marketing agency to a client strategy studio, which kind of a new term, basically like a sales studio. I help female-owned service-based businesses and coaches get new clients through courses and coaching. So starting my own, own business really helped for my confidence and I think in mostly a healthy way to refocus all of that energy that I have because as someone who you know was was diagnosed as bipolar I do just generally have a lot of energy and even if now it doesn't manifest as mania I still do have a lot of energy so finding a way to refocus that from loving someone that does not love me to running a business where I can actually get something back for all the energy I put in was was a much healthier release, I think. Yeah, I love that. Because honestly, you were wasting a lot of time and energy on someone like you said, that didn't love you back versus putting time and energy in a business <laughs> that's going to help you in the future and not only help you, but you're helping other women too. So tell us a little bit about that as we wrap up this episode, because I want to I want to make sure that you get to say what you do you do now for other people. Yeah, so the marketing that I did for a long time, I really enjoyed, but I didn't like that I was so mostly disconnected from the women that I wanted to help. I really love as a people person to be able to help people hands on. And I really like helping them in in a big way for business owners, which is finding them new clients to increase their income and help them work a lot smarter and not harder. So that's what I'm focused on now is I'm, I'm doing one-on-one coaching as my first offering starting in early July. And then I have a course to help you get new clients coming out at the end of July. And as soon as I started doing it, like the very first discovery call to see if this person would be a good fit for one-on-one coaching, I just loved it because I was so excited rather than just talking to them one time and then doing all the work on my own. I know that after I talk to this person, that's a great fit. 
I can actually work with them through the process to help them achieve their their goals. So I'm excited about that. It's been going really, really well. I've had eight discovery calls in the last two weeks, which is pretty great. And I've got a, a lot of them that are really good fit. So I'm excited to help those women find new clients. That's awesome, Alyssa. So as we wrap up this episode, what would you say is your nugget of wisdom that you'd like to leave the ladies who are listening to your journey? Yeah, I would say my biggest nugget of wisdom is that you are in charge of your own journey. And no matter how much you think that there are, you know, there are so many other factors that will affect your journey. You are the number one person that is the queen of your journey and you can control where that's going. So I actually sent um, a little excerpt that I really like from Game of Thrones from Littlefinger that says, every time I'm faced with a decision, I close my eyes and I see the same picture. Whenever I consider a question, I ask myself, will this action make the picture a reality? I'll pull it out of my mind and into the world. And I only act if the answer is yes. Oh, I love that. I would encourage you guys to think of your top two or three goals and write those down somewhere that you're going to look at every day. I put them in Asana, which is a project management tool. And a lot of women I know also will write them on a whiteboard or chalkboard. And every day I look at those goals, at least morning and night. Some people do it three times a day. And I make sure that everything I'm doing is going to support those goals in the life that I want to live, whether that's business or where you want to live or anything at all that you want to do. So that's been really helpful. Yeah. Or even relationships. It could work on even relationships, right? Yes. Yes, definitely. Well, thank you, Alyssa, again, for sharing your incredible journey. And I'm so thankful that you were vulnerable and you got to tell everybody what it's like to just go from a small town to a big town and learn all these lessons. And you're still young. And I'm so happy that you've learned them now, rather than some of us who are learning it in their 40s. (laughs) So there's so many great things in your future. So thank you again for listening to another episode of Journey of a Fearless Female. I'm your host, Paola Rosser. You can find the Fearless Female Movement on Facebook at the Fearless Female Movement. You can find me on Instagram at Fearless Female Podcast. Alyssa, how can my listeners find you? Yeah, so my Instagram is Nerve Client Studio. That's the easiest way to find me. And I also have a Facebook as well that is... Alyssa at Nerd Creative Media, which is my old business name that I'm working to change as soon as Facebook approves it. But Nerve Client Studio on Instagram is the easiest way to find me. Perfect. Tune in next week for another episode of Journey of a Fearless Female. Goodbye. Goodbye.